This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. When we speak of family, we use terms like the domestic church. Pope Paul VI spoke of families as the first school of social virtues. We speak of God as our father and of of the church as our mother because we expect that there's something in our experience of fathers and mothers that will help us understand the provision and the care that we receive from God and from his church. But what are we to do when our experience of father and mother, instead of providing us clarity into the nature of God, distorts that view? How do we get past those negative experiential images to be able to relate to God as he is in his goodness and in his His provision and in his care and in his kindness when that hasn't been our experience of our earthly parents? And more so, how do we then break those cycles of toxicity to be able to hand on to our children a proper image of God and his church as father and as mother? Well, that's the topic of our conversation today as we're speaking with Aaron McColcup about a new book called All Things New, Breaking the Cycle and Raising a Joyful Family. It's available on our Sunday visitor, osv.com. Aaron, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Why don't you walk us through the, the beginnings of how this book came to be? I was raised in a um, difficult environment, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. um, with some you know, serious abuse and chronic neglect that that happened. Um, but of course, it was one of those. We looked like a nice, perfect Catholic family from the outside. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as time went on and I moved out, um, went to college, had a, a reversion experience because when I went to college, I was an agnostic. And then I had this big, like quite literally come to Jesus moment. <laughs> um, and then, you know, just threw myself into my faith. And... They got the faith on my right hand and on the left hand pursuing mental health topics Um, and was for many years writing Catholic fiction and got to know people in the publishing industry. And um, a friend of mine, you know, who was working for our Sunday visitor books at the time, uh, reached out and, hey, do you have any ideas for nonfiction? Mm -hmm. I'm like, nonfiction? Sure. So I, I pitched a couple and this was this was the one that was closest to my heart because um, I had done, it was something I had done so much work on, on a daily basis was the yeah. um, concept of breaking that cycle of not passing the buck of abuse past me. Um, so all things new came about and in the process of writing it, I mean, I knew going in that I was like, I, every time I've had any kind of writing project, there's always been some big lesson, but this was the biggest set of lessons for me. I had a lot to to learn and correct and amend on my own as well. But God, you know, shone a bright light on that so that I could move forward through the project of writing this book. I think it's St. Benedict who talks with in, in the rule that there is a need for continual conversion, that uh, each of us can't just say, oh, well, I, I came to Christ or I came to Jesus in this moment, or I entered the monastery on this date and then and then that's it, right? That's the the culmination of our spiritual journey. Uh, and in that same way that we, uh, the, the monk has to look at his life every day and say, what is the thing that needs to be renewed today? What are the things that I need to convert in my own life? 
uh, so too in our family lives. Whatever your family upbringing, there are things that come from our upbringing that maybe uh, from a, a different time and place made sense, but do not make sense for where we are today. And that we have to, even if you have the best family life, you have to look at the cycles that have been perpetuated throughout a family and say, is this completely sanctified or do I still need to move forward? Uh I bring that up because I want I want each of you to go out and pick up this book because even if you have the best family life and there was nothing wrong with it there are cycles to examine and to uh to change. However, I would say that specifically in this day and time um there are probably some really unhealthy cycles that came in your upbringing that I have uh recently come to realize not everyone is aware of the negative cycles that feed their own thoughts and feed their own habits today that came from something maybe mildly negative or maybe profoundly negative in their past. That is a cycle that needs to be broken so that it is not perpetuated on without uh, without care or without thought. Um, as you were going through this book, of course, you're telling your own story, but you're also telling a story of a number of other people whose experiences were were different than yours, but still represented cycles that needed to be broken. Um, I'm I'm curious, how many of those did you come across that had maybe a late realization that oh, this is a problem, and my upbringing is not what I had always pictured it to be. I think that's almost a universal experience uh, because in order to survive, our childhoods we need to like we our brains are built to convince ourselves that these people that i have to rely on are reliable whether they are or not um mm-hmm. and so it's not until you know god brings us to the point of adulthood that really there's even an option to live differently um for instance like i like i said earlier um every time i've ever had a writing project there's been some big lesson the first event of that happening in my life was eighth grade. I had to write a term paper and I I write about this in all things new. Um, And it was, you know, I'm dating myself here a little bit. It was the age of, um, Hey, let's put missing children on milk cartons. (laughs) That was like, you know, missing children. I'm going to do my, uh, I'm going to do my term paper on missing children. And as I'm reading all the, the symptoms of children who were, you know, kidnapped and then returned. And keep in mind, I am 13 years old at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, I act like this. Well, that's weird. I've I've never been kidnapped. And it just sort of planted that seed that, wait a minute, maybe there's something wrong. Yeah. And, you know, granted, like I was saying, I was not I was not an adult at the time. So like I did not have the power to really make the kinds of changes that God empowers adults to make. But, you know, that time came, thank God. And um and it keeps coming because I keep, you know, not just learning things, but needing to practice them until they become, yeah. you know, second nature. Um, there's there's a term emotional sobriety until I'm, you know, in a place where I can, you know, approach other people's upset, especially my children, um, from a place that is, as you said, sanctified um, rather mm-hmm. than reactive. Because that, that's how I was taught to behave. I was taught to behave with rage and manipulation. And so 
like you said, like even after reaching adulthood and thinking I, I had a, gained a lot of knowledge, I mean, I had, but there's there was still more. And, you know, I just discovering that, hey, you know what? I don't have to yell all the time. Who knew? Um, right. Well, and, and I think that there's, you talked about there was a certain amount of knowledge that you had gained. Uh, but when we're talking about breaking a cycle, uh, we have to realize that there is more than just the intellectual component of realizing that something is off, right? Then there's the, the ingrained fact of if I have lived with this for my whole life and I have learned this as the way that works or I have learned to cope with stress in a certain specific way, then it it's it's a habitual thing that doesn't really reach the intellect before it is expressed. And so we have to deal with it not only on the intellectual level of learning the the things that are right and good and healthy, but then also to re-ingrain new habits within ourselves and, and to uh, take off old coping mechanisms that don't fit and find new ways to deal with, with situations that, that overwhelm and blindside us. And so uh, to be able to do that in a way that's not just, oh, I'm going to, you know, figure out the right strategy and then I'm going to, you know, put it on my whiteboard and white knuckle my way through it. Um, there's, there is a profoundly spiritual component to this. And that's one of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about the book is that it's not just a informational self-help book of, oh, hey, look at all of these things that you didn't know. It brings that spirituality into it and says, here are some strategies, here are some prayers, here are some specific things to think about and to practice to help you, again, along the title, renew renew that portion of your life, make all things new, to break that cycle, not only for your own sake and your own emotional well-being, but for the the, the legacy that comes after. Yeah. And it's just as you were saying, you know, like it's about breaking a cycle. Sure. But it's also about if all you do is break a cycle, all you have is something broken. We don't have anything yeah. whole. And, you know, that's why I, I love that um, this is the title OSB, you know, settled on because it's it's about, you know, moving on to something new. It's about that resurrection after that, that, you know, crucifixion, however long it took in whatever form it took. Um, especially at the hands of our own families. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with my wife, maybe in the last month, two months, where we're we're driving somewhere. I don't even remember the context of it, but it hit me that um, apparently being ashamed isn't a, a universal experience. Like that shame wasn't used in her household as a way to... Uh, to correct behavior. Right. And and I looked at that and went, oh, wait. So my experience and the experience of some of the friends who grew up in that same kind of cultural milieu that I did, that's not a universal thing. Um, I just kind of figured that was part of of the the experience of growing up in a household where there was right and wrong that was taught. And apparently, apparently, and I don't know if you knew this, Aaron, apparently you can teach right and wrong without using shame. I, I came to this knowledge rather late myself. <laughs> and that's the thing, like some things I didn't even know were shaming. Yeah. You know, just, I, it, there were the obvious things like comparison and favoritism, obviously. I mean, well, it, it wasn't obvious to some people, but it was obvious to me. But um, just things like not talking about and naming emotions kinds of puts them in kind of puts our emotional lives in this you know dungeon where they they can't serve and 
if emotions are something that only we in the animal kingdom have, that means it's something that is godly. And God expresses emotions throughout the Bible. So if we're going to live in a clear image of God's, you know, image, he made us to be bearers of his image in this world, um, fallen as it is, that we, we've got to get in touch with that. And I kind of just thought that, you know, because of every emotion I was shown was rage, mm-hmm. I kind of had this thing that emotions were bad. You know, I was punished for being happy. I was punished for laughing. I was punished for having having fun. Um, and so I didn't really invest my own children in their early years with um, what I call emotional connection in the book, that ability to name and identify and really fully experience emotions without shutting down. Mm-hmm. You obviously, you're telling your own story. You're also telling the story of others. Um, what was the process for you of identifying which topics, which cycles needed to be brought up? And how did you go about connecting with the people whose stories you could then uh, bring forward and share? Ooh, um, well, coming up with the topic, this is going to sound like the most nerdy Catholic answer in the world, but like there's no other way to hit it. It was the fruit of Eucharistic adoration. And I actually write about that in the book about how I, you know, ended up going to Eucharistic adoration. And um, so it just kind of, I'm not going to be one of those people who says, you know, the Holy Spirit wrote the book. Like that, that just sounds so cheesy. <laughs> like there, there was, the, there was not a, the, the outline itself was not a whole lot of work on my part. It yeah. just kind of, showed up in adoration. So take that how you will. But it was just obvious that the um, the sort of like a, a set of 10, sort of like the 10 commandments, but for parenting and one of the 10 commandments, the, the new commandments for us in the new covenant, that's the Beatitudes. So to sort of mm-hmm. like develop that into, you know, actual 10, I broke the, you know, the greatest commandment, um, love God and love your neighbor as yourself into two and then focused on each of the eight beatitudes yeah and each beatitude has what i call this beatitude basic this little lesson in it that says like this is this is how we can bring holiness to our relationships not perfection um not Mm -hmm. you know pristine selves just holiness and holiness is messy sometimes um, because that's the thing I talk about in here is um, one of the yeah. only ways to build a solid relationship with anybody, especially your children, is something called the rupture and repair cycle. Unless you have a rupture and come to a full repair of it, there's no really secure relationship. Now, as to your question about um, how did I how did I find these people? Yeah. Um, well, hurt people tend to attract hurt people. <laughs> There were a number of people I just, you know, knew. Um, and I guess I've sort of been, it, it, the the labels in, you know, fa- dysfunctional family dynamics, I was the scapegoat in my original fa- family of origin because I was the truth teller. I just, I'm not mm-hmm. particularly good at lying. Um, it's so uncomfortable for me. Um, there are times I wish that were not so, but, it, I, it, you know, come the end of my life, I'm going to be glad it was so. But anyway, um, so I sort of had this, it's gotten better, but a level of no filter. So I would, you know, talk about things, especially once I was free of my family mm-hmm. of origin. 
And that kind of opened up for other people to come in and talk to me. And then, you know, through through the networks of like, yeah. you know, asking, hey, do you know anybody who um, do you especially hard to get get men to talk about their experience? Um, and maybe you can address that, but mm-hmm. that would turn around to me interviewing you, <laughs> which I'm fine with. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was especially difficult to get men to come out and talk about their their difficult experiences. Yeah. Um, I. I think that there is a certain amount of um, maybe nervousness about addressing this. You know, it's, you've got asterisks by a number of of people's names here. You know, names have been changed to protect the innocent. And there's, I think, this residual as well as you come from a difficult family environment that we don't talk specifically. You mentioned that you from the outside, yours was the the, the beautiful Catholic family that had everything all together. I grew up in a Protestant household, but that feel, that vibe was very much the same, that there was an an internal reality. And then there was the reality that we projected. And it wasn't necessarily meant to deceive people. It was from this idea of we have to have our stuff together, right? We have to be put together uh, in order to be palatable to everyone. And so this is how we act in public. And uh, the way that we act at home is... Um, is somehow inferior to that. So we have to hide it, right? If there's this, this hiddenness to that. Um, and so I think maybe there's this residual of even after recognizing, oh, here are some difficult things from my upbringing. Um, but I don't want to air those things. I don't want to bring shame to the family. I don't want to, whatever the case may be, even though through, um, through charitable, discussion through bringing light in charity to a situation is the only way that that healing can be brought to that situation right um through through the dealing with the sin and let's let's put it in the 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 idea of the sacrament of reconciliation right through the examination of conscience through bringing those things to the light that's how the holy spirit does the work for us to be able to go in and have that not only forgiveness, but that reconciling. And I, I think that that's probably, uh, it's certainly difficult for me, but I'm sure that that probably plays into a, a number of people saying, I, you know, I have this, but I'm not sure I want to really bring it into the light and look at it carefully. And I'm certainly not sure I want to talk about it in public. Right. And there's also the the subject, the, the, the sticky wicket of um, number one, those of us who are raised in dysfunctional homes, any protest at how we were treated was punished mm-hmm. and we've been punished enough. So, you know, a lot of people for number one, they don't want to deal with more punishment. And even for those people like myself who are no contact or low contact with those family of origin members, um, there's a fear of reprisal. Mm-hmm. Um, I kept out a lot of the worst cause I don't want to get sued. Yeah. Um, not that like, you know, from what I understand, having talked to lawyers about this, this, this possibility, um, you know, it, it would, it, it, it wouldn't really come to anything. Most likely it would be really hard to, to make a case, um, but against me, but I, mm-hmm. I don't want to pay the legal fees. I've already paid enough in therapy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. Like the more dysfunctional, um, family of origin members are the, more punishing they want to be for anybody who speaks out against mm-hmm. the system from which they frankly benefited. 
Yeah. At our expense. In, in terms of examining the life before and breaking a cycle um, and creating a new and healthy environment, I think one of the things that has been very impactful for me is, uh, one, you mentioned we, we're not trying to be perfect. We, we don't have to, you know, holiness is messy. Um, that's been a, a liberating thing for me because there was this sense of everything has to be in line. And we, you know, you, you, you sit up straight and in church and you, you know, you're the, the pillars of the community and whatnot. Um, to realize that I'm allowed to make mistakes and I'm allowed to make mistakes as a parent. And it's okay for me to apologize to my children when that happens. And it's actually a very powerful thing for me to come to them and say, Hey, you know, I just lost my temper there. And here are the underlying reasons for that. You know, I, I was experiencing stress and I didn't handle that stress well. And here's how that happened. And this is what happened because of that. And you were wronged in that. Now, this little aspect over here of my frustration, that was valid. But the way that that got carried out, that was an invalid thing. And your dignity is worth more than that. And I'm sorry for that. And to be able to speak that, one, is acknowledging to myself that I don't have to be perfect. But two, reinvesting in my children their own worth and value uh, is is a thing that can't be done if if I have to believe that everything is perfect, right? Right. Yeah. The um, and it, again, it comes back to that shame, um, and mm -hmm. that's why it's so cyclical. Because, you know, a child makes a mistake and is punished, but the relationship is not repaired and punished too harshly, punished in completely inappropriate ways. Um, that child, you know, thinks the only way I will escape pain is by acting perfect mm -hmm. by not letting anybody see my humanity and that you know that's that's the core of shame that i am not okay as i am um and it's a delicate balance as a parent to you know teach our kids that there's something i say actually to, i teach a theater class as well to homeschoolers and one of the things i tell them is like You're, we're never going to get the show perfect it will never be perfect but it can be excellent mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something I've tried to at least model for my kids. So, yeah, that's just that, that, that cycle of the shame. The, the one parent teaches the child, you know, you have to be perfect. And that child grows up to be a parent and teaches the next child and so right. on and so forth. So that's why the cycles, it, that's why it's so cyclical because it's how we well, all survive for so long. And to look at it, I think, with maybe a little bit of charity, uh, there's the realization that this that I am feeling that I have to be perfect and that I can't make any mistakes was imposed on me by a parent who thought they had to be perfect and can't make any mistakes because they were that was imposed on them by a parent. You know, to kind of deconstruct that, even if it doesn't bring um, a healing of relationship, it at least brings a, a healing of perspective and context that allows me to be uh, maybe more merciful and compassionate. Um, not that there's any excuse for the things that came before, whether that be uh, verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, so all of which you cover in in the book, but at least recognizing that um, the person who came before me was impacted by their own family of origin as well, right? Right, that is part of it. And yet, as the scapegoat, 
of my family mm-hmm. of origin um, who had to apologize all the time. All the time. I had to apologize for existing, basically. Um, they had to teach me that somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody had to teach me to apologize. And then they taught me the dynamic that the only person in the family who had to apologize was me. Yeah. And so I've, I've got to wonder um, how much culpability is there. And then I have to remind myself, it's not my job to figure that out. That's, that's on <laughs> that's God. Right. That, that job has been taken and not by me and I don't want it anyway. Um, so all I can do is, you know, see how I want myself and my children to be treated and go to places where that happens. Yeah. And if that's not with, you know, my family of origin, then that's a shame. Um, You know, I I did the part of communicating to them as best I could that, hey, this is not okay. And I kept going. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only people, um, you know, we sinners only keep sinning in ways that feel like they help. They feel like they benefit us. And so that's why people you know, stay in this sin and stay in that idea that what I am doing is perfect. Mm-hmm. And there, there is, um, there's this, this book uh, and I, I forget who it's by, but there's, a, um, it was on, on the Pauline books and media and it's a children's book. It's a lovely book on, on forgiveness. And, and in that, it says forgiveness is not a rug to be walked over and over again, right? That, and it tells the children, it's okay to forgive and also give yourself space and find safety. And I think that that's an important thing for us as, as adults to realize as well, that forgiveness and reconciliation are not necessarily, they're related, but they're not necessarily in the same thing. And so for... For someone to come and say, oh, well, this bad thing happened to you and you just need to, to you know, um, pray harder and and forgive. Uh, and we hear that a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but to be able to say, you know, I am I have done the hard work of forgiveness and a boundary is not the same thing as bitterness. Right. And people who benefit from our not having boundaries are the ones who are going to convince us that oh, you're being bitter. You're holding your grudge. Mm-hmm. That's because they want permission back to to keep sinning. And in that case, the most charitable, merciful thing we can do is remove their opportunities to sin. Yeah. Now, and, if they still fact, find those opportunities, that's not on us. Yeah. I'm going to put a link to this up on our social media uh, over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. There is a, a lovely uh, interaction from Pope Francis maybe about four years ago where he says just that thing, that, that justice is mercy to the oppressor because it, that that same thing that by doing justice you are giving the greatest mercy that there is to give and that's to remove the opportunity of them to to engage in that sin we're going to put that up over on social media the book here is all things new breaking the cycle and raising a joyful family uh, it's available on our sunday visitor press osv.com and our guest today is the author of that book aaron mccall cup Aaron, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads, the handles step outside the walls and don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation right after the break. You're listening to outside the walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Erin McCole Cup. She is the author of the book, All Things New, Breaking the Cycle and Raising a Joyful Family. It's available on our Sunday Visitor. Uh, this is such an important book. Um, you need to read this book, whether or not you know that you need to read this book, uh, because I guarantee you, for our day and time, the, the chances are that if you yourself have had a perfect upbringing, and this does not apply to you at all, chances are it applies to someone very close to you, uh, maybe even to one of your siblings, because here's the thing that I've learned is that siblings do not grow up in the same house, even if they grow up in the same house. Uh, and so I pick this book up, read through it, so that you can, at the very least, uh, recognize and, and help a friend through a difficult time. And at the very most, identify difficulties that maybe you didn't know existed so that you can create a more healthy, a more whole environment for your children or your grandchildren. Uh, the book, again, is All Things New. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on today. So over at your website, uh, which is easy, it's com. It's E-R-I-N-M-C-C-O-L-E. There's double C there, C-U-P-P.com. You've got a little quiz um, that that basically says, help me identify the, the, the beatitude that I need to to delve into a little bit more deeply. You could probably say this more clearly. Uh, but uh, someone can go there, they can go through the quiz, a uh, really simple process, and then it will gather up that information and return a result that helps them do what? Um, it will help you find new ways to approach problems that are probably pretty chronic in your life, mm -hmm. I hope. Um, the way the quiz works is it, it's literally you click one one thing and you're done. It's that quick. Um, you just, there's a, there are two, three little buttons to, you know, that describe you and you pick which one describes you the most. And um, then you automatically get a free copy of the chapter that okay. applies to, you know, whether it's um, you need to get a little more poor in spirit, like you need to be a little more teachable whether you need to get um, connected with mourning with your grief. So that's blessed are those who mourn and that's, you know, emotional connection. If you need some emotional connection in your life or um, do you need boundaries? Do you need to learn how to be meek uh, mm -hmm. to acknowledge where I stop and another person begins? Yeah. And then, well, I'll send you that, that chapter. So obviously you've got a, a sample size. You've got a number of people who have taken this quiz. What do you find is the most common response that people give? Well, what's funny, it's the one, the one that's most common is not mine. <laughs> my, my biggest problem is emotional connection. Um, mm. I have, you know, for all of my facility with words as a writer um, and a communicator, I like putting my feelings into words and sharing them especially with my kids and modeling that is really, really hard for, for me. Um, and I, you know, still miss the mark a lot, but the people, like I've gotten a couple hundred of people taking this quiz by now and that overwhelmingly it's people need some boundaries. People need to be able to say, you know, say yes when they mean yes and no when they mean no. And 
not get consumed by guilt. Because I've heard it said that um, if you have I, some other author wrote this and I forget who it was, so I'm not taking credit for it. Um, if you have to choose between guilt and resentment, choose guilt every time because guilt eventually fizzles out, mm-hmm. whereas resentment only builds. So let's talk about boundaries because I think boundaries is one of those things that is often misunderstood. Um, boundaries can be seen as, you know, you're you are preventing this good relationship that we have. Uh, we've this has worked for us for so long. Why are you Why are you keeping us out? Why are you um, uh, keeping us away? And and it's seen as in some ways. Um, an act of aggression to put up a boundary. So let's talk about what boundaries are and what they aren't. Um, if you were to define a boundary in its simplest essence, how would you define boundaries? If I were going to boil boundaries down to a tweet, let's say, um, boundaries is about, having boundaries is about identifying where my space begins where my space ends and what kind of people are allowed to not what kind of people what kind of behaviors are welcome in my space Mm -hmm. because it's not about controlling people it's not about you know my my boundary is that you have to stop yelling at me Mm -hmm. because i have no control over what whether somebody else yells or not the only person i can control from yelling is me and sometimes i don't even do a very good job of that um, what a boundary actually is, is I am not comfortable with yelling. If you continue yelling, I'm going to leave this conversation. Mm-hmm. And then the person who got some sort of perceived benefit from intimidating me with yelling, mm-hmm. they're they're going to get mad because part of, um, this is something I've actually discovered right now. I'm training to um, be a, certified trauma recovery coach. And I think I'm the only Catholic one of the, would be the only Catholic one of those in the world. So that's kind of exciting. But um, the the boundaries, oh, I, golly, I just derailed my own train of thought. Hey, trauma brain, that happens. <laughs> the boundaries, we're talking about boundaries and saying no. Oh, okay. So the people who got some sort of comfort, not comfort, but comfort from manipulating us and intimidating us into behaving ways that made them feel comfortable and did not sanctify them, um, they're going to get mad because people who are living with that level of immaturity are basically objectifying others. Mm-hmm. Others are objects, um, not other human beings with their own, you know, intellect and will. They're to perform how, you know, the one person wants them to perform. And if they don't, then it, it's, you know, it's cause for them to believe they're being punished when really they're just living in reality. I I like to think of it as like when we objectify people, we turn them into furniture. Mm -hmm. So imagine it's been a long day at work and you're running home and you really need the bathroom and you run into the bathroom and the toilet is not there. Yeah. You're going to scream. What? (laughs) Where's my toilet? (laughs) Um, And it's, but when we expect other people to be there, you know, I need somebody who's going to let me dump all of my rage on them. Mm-hmm. And that person says, no, it's, it's the same, same reaction. Yeah. And, you know, learning how to stop, to not, to treat people as people rather than objects is 
a mature function mm-hmm. and it takes choice. And there are people who do not want to mature that way. I mean, there are people who can't, I guess, but I, there are a lot of people who just will not. And that's, there's nothing we can do about that. And we do not help them by enabling that. Mm-hmm. We just don't. And until they hit their bottom, they're likely to just keep going. Well, and, and let's bring up again something I, we said earlier in this segment, that, that two people can grow up in the same house and have a completely different experience. And you could have a person who uh, is completely capable of recognizing the dignity of a human person over here in this sphere of their life, maybe in outreach, maybe in, in whatever the, the their specific um, uh, charitable activity or, or even their, their work life uh, exists. They can, they can find the dignity of the human person, recognize it and honor it over here. But there is a blinding maybe with a relationship or with the family situation where um, even though they grasp that concept over here, somehow it doesn't apply in the same way to family. And, and there's not even a, an intellectual assent to the fact of the difference. It's just a blindness to the differences of those situations. And so it doesn't even do us, I think, good to say, oh, well, um, this person has a grasp on the dignity. What what matters is for us to say, in this situation, in this moment, uh, is my dignity as a human person, is my autonomy being recognized, or am I being used as that object? Right. Am I being used as the object? And is this person using my children as an object? Yeah. And that's where the rubber really hits the road. I mean, that's the the heart of the reason why I, you know, had to close off my relationship with my mother because, you know, knowing what, you know, how I was raised, I Mm -hmm. could not in good conscience bring children into the world with the expectation that she would be in their lives because then, I mean, it wouldn't, her sin would not be on me even in that case. You know, I don't want anybody right. to start blaming themselves, um, but I just, in good good conscience, would not expose my children to that. This is not the kind of uh, topic that I often hear uh, talked about on Catholic radio or in Catholic circles very often. I'm curious, um, what would you encourage a person to do? How would you encourage a person to examine their own situation, to determine whether uh, it a project and a plan of boundaries need to be set into place, even if that takes them to a place where no contact is the result. It's really important. You know, I'm I'm a theology of the body fangirl, so I'm always going to go back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to go back to, you know, God saying it is not good for the man to be alone. So it's good not, not good for people to be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I would encourage, I mean, I can't really tell people what to do, but I can say, here's what worked for me. What worked for me was, you know, getting educated, like being a little voracious, a little geeky about all things um, family mental health. Um, and, you know, bringing that to prayer and being willing to do anything to serve God mm-hmm. um, in truth here in this world. And then, you know, uh, what God, he made, he did not made, uh, make us for um, isolating with books. 
um, as wonderful as books are. And, you know, no no shade to the Desert Fathers, but, <laughs> you know, if, if God is Trinity, that means God is relationship. Mm-hmm. That means we image him most when we are in relationship. So go out and build your community of people who speak truth into you. And that is what will give, that's what gave me the freedom to, you know, pull back, really look objectively at how my family of origin was treating me and to say, wow, that's really not okay. Mm-hmm. And then that gave me a soft place to land. It gives me still a soft place to land is that that community. Now, is it is there a lot of grief to deal with that it's not my family of origin? Yes, it's yeah. a lot of grief. It's really sad. Um, well, but it's a fallen world and there's really not a lot I can do about that. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably the last question we have time for today. Um, and it's, it's this, you, you talked about going and spending time in prayer, but for many people who uh, grew up in, in religiously adherent homes yet with deep flaws, uh, prayer was often used as a, uh, as a control tactic. You know, we'll go pray about that, uh, basically unspoken until you see things the way that I see things. So um, now you have a person who may have uh, gone through the process of learning about uh, healthy mental relationships and has the intellectual knowledge, but still even so feels the grief every time they try to go to prayer and they hear the messages of of forgiveness. And every time they hear the story of the prodigal son, and every time they hear the readings come up about forgiveness in, in mass, and every time that they... Uh, try and approach prayer, they're filled with some sense of of guilt and also of fear because they don't feel that they can continue in those same kinds of scenarios, but they're worried that the faith, which has been used to control them in the past, they're worried that that faith is going to be used to force them back into something that, that feels deeply unhealthy to them. Uh, how do you uh, How do you address that person who wants to pray? but is terrified of what that prayer will bring them to. This is reminding me of an experience in my own life when I was working with um, a sort of mentor on my relationship with God, because the image that I had of God was of somebody who um, mostly, like I worked very, very hard to please in everything I did, but in return, God mostly ignored me except when I got really annoying and then did something to shut me up. And my mentor's like, that sounds like your earthly father, mm-hmm. <laughs> not your heavenly father. Like, oh, okay. So at the, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this and still struggling with really like trusting God. After, after like being a professional Catholic for like 10 years, I was still struggling with God. And um, one night, two of my kids got really mad at me about something. And I'm working on, at this time, I'm still working on this, building what's called my window of tolerance, my ability to just be there and be present and not react, not get reactive, not get ragey, um, or not shut down or not leave when um, people I love are having a hard time Um, and to just not tell them to stop feeling that way. So Mm -hmm. I'm like working on that and they're like just sitting there seething at me. And what I had done was, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but I remember thinking like, no, the, this was the right parenting decision. This this needed to be done. 
And I was just, you know, sitting there and like feeling them seethe at me. <laughs> and it was so uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, I want to just like, I want to leave the room. I want to go eat a sleeve of crackers. I want to go scroll on my phone. I want to just get out of here. I'm like, no, no, they're allowed to have their feelings. I'm going to sit here and show them that they are allowed to have whatever feelings they want and they want. And I am not going to leave. And as I'm thinking that, I'm like, oh, oh, that's God. Yeah. That's God. God isn't changing things because when we haven't prayed the right prayer or fasted the right fast or, you know, said the right words. He's there with us through it all and doesn't doesn't demand that we change our emotions to make him feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so from that story, what I hope people can take is number one, the danger of assuming and not challenging that assumption that our heavenly father is like our earthly parents mm-hmm. because our earthly parents are fallen. And just because they treated us one way doesn't mean that was a holy way to treat us. Yeah. And number two, just that idea that God won't change everything for us, but he'll be with us through everything. Yeah. Because in the end, you know, as long as we cling to him, Jesus shows us what happens. The cross ends eventually. And we know how it ends when we stay on it long enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's a resurrection. It's guaranteed. And that's the change that I want because it's permanent. (laughs) How about you? (laughs) Yeah. The book is All Things New, Breaking the Cycle and Raising a Joyful Family. It's by Aaron McCall Cup and available on our Sunday Visitor Press. Uh, I want you to go over to AaronMcCallCup.com, take that little quiz, get the free chapter of the book. And as you read that book, you'll come to realize why you need to go pick up the whole thing. Aaron, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. God bless. If you missed any part of this conversation with Aaron McCulcup or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you want more on this topic, I've got good news. We have more to this conversation. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them a couple extra questions for the guest. And so you can learn more over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link. There you'll find some extra segments that have uh, now been made available to the general public, and consider if you want to be a part of that community that gets early access uh, to those uh, those episodes as they come out, those extra segments as they come out. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I answer you. On the day of salvation I help you. I form you and set you as a covenant for the people to restore the land and allot the devastated heritages. To say to the prisoners, Come out, 
to those in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roadways they shall find pasture. On every barren height shall their pastures be. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor shall scorching wind or sun strike them. For he who pities them leads them and guides them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roadway and make my highways level. See, these shall come from afar, some from the north and the west, others from the land of Syene. Sing out heavens and rejoice earth. Break forth into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and shows mercy to his afflicted. But Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget her infant? Be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget, I will never forget you. See, upon the palms of my hands I have engraved you. Your walls are ever before me. That reading again comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49. And we're reading this section as God is drawing and calling his people out of exile and out of the pain that they have endured to restore them. And we're reading that whole section mainly to get to that last verse, because it seems to the writer of this, uh, to the, the, the prophet, unthinkable that a mother would ever think of anything beyond her child, that certainly the mother would have compassion. Certainly the mother, just as we've been talking about, there's this expectation that uh, the, the mother is going to provide an example of tenderness. And yet, even as perhaps in the prophet's mind, that's an unthinkable thing, he presses on and says, even as unthinkable as that is, even if that were to happen, it is more unthinkable that God would forsake you. Even should a mother forget her child, the child of her womb, I will not forget you. And if you are on that side of things, if you have experienced abandonment or neglect or, uh, or, or abuse at the hands of a mother or a father, God is coming in his tenderness, and he has not forgotten you. And he's coming in his tenderness to give you love, to give you life, and to give you so much more, to give you all of himself. Our reading today from Church History comes from a dialogue on divine providence by St. Catherine of Siena. With a look of mercy that revealed his indescribable kindness, God the Father spoke to Catherine. Beloved daughter, Everything I give to man comes from the love and care I have for him. I desire to show my mercy to the whole world and my protective love to all those who want it. But in his ignorance, man treats himself very cruelly. My care is constant, but he turns my life-giving gifts into a source of death. Yes, I created him with loving care and formed him in my image and likeness. I pondered, and I was moved by the beauty of my creation. I gave him a memory to recall my goodness, for I wanted him to share in my own power. I gave him an intellect to know and to understand my will 
through the wisdom of my Son. For I am the giver of every good gift, and I love him with a Father's constant love. Through the Holy Spirit I gave him a will to love what he would come to know with his intellect. In my loving care I did all this, so that he could know me and perceive my goodness, and rejoice to see me forever. But as I have recounted elsewhere, heaven had been closed off because of Adam's disobedience. Immediately after his sin, all manner of evil made its advance throughout the world. So that I might commute death consequent upon this disobedience, I attended to you with my loving care. Out of provident concern, I handed over my only begotten Son to make satisfaction for your needs. I demanded supreme obedience from him so that the human race might be freed of the poison which had infected the entire earth because of Adam's disobedience. With eager love, he submitted to a shameful death on the cross, and by that death, he gave you life, not merely human, but divine. That reading comes from a dialogue on divine providence by St. Catherine of Siena. God has revealed himself completely to us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no more need for a, a revelation of who God is because it's been done through Christ. However, as Paul says in the book of Romans, right now, we see through a glass dimly. One day we'll see face to face, one day we'll know in full, but now we see through a glass. And that's made sometimes, and for some people, all the more difficult when the glass that's put in front of them has been dirtied or has been warped uh, by those who were supposed to help form us. The good news is this. God makes all things new. And just as he did here in this letter with a dialogue on divine providence with St. Catherine of Siena, in her prayer and in her meditation, he came and gave her a special understanding. It's not a more full revelation. It's not a new revelation. It's just a different way of seeing things. Sometimes when we have difficulty with the language that already exists, God comes and gives us new language. And if you have difficulty in prayer, just the desire. Say, God, I just, I, I, I'm having difficulty with this. I'm, I don't know precisely where to go, but I want to know fully. And, and just that desire, if that's all the prayer you can muster, it's enough for God to come and to begin to give us new frameworks uh, to clean off that that glass rather dimly to give us a little bit of a better view of the the self-gift and the tenderness of God as exemplified through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all the time we have for today. It was a big topic, but thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by all of those who support the show at Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This 
podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.